You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to agree the basis upon which the Northern Ireland executive can return on a stable financial footing. The UK government is willing to help, but all of these issues can be best addressed by the return of locally accountable institutions built on secure foundations. We've been here before. Stormont collapses on a point of principle. The government uses a financial package carrot to try and entice the parties back into the devolved institutions. But there's always the stick as well. No deal, no additional funds. That means sectors like health and education continue to struggle. Geoffrey Donaldson wants to take the credit for new Westminster cash, but he says it's not enough. And all the while, the DUP say there's still some way to go in the negotiations on the Windsor framework. The DUP have had 18 months to mull over the minutiae of the Windsor framework and the changes they want to it. This is much more important. The Secretary of State has not said there is a deadline, and we are working towards this a solution. And I will keep focused on getting uh, to that solution. So, where are we at? Will the Secretary of State cough up more dough? Is Sir Geoffrey getting ready to jump? And will his party join him? I'm joined by our Northern Ireland editor, Sam McBride. Sam, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. Just for people, perhaps people who are overseas, perhaps people who follow politics on the Bell Tale and not constantly on the radio, for example, just what exactly is happening so Stormont collapsed um, at the start of last year over the NI protocol. It's now called the Windsor Framework. This is the thing which means that there's an Irish sea border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This was something that lots of people who back the DUP did not like for ideological reasons, for practical reasons. And the DUP thought that the only leverage it had was to walk away from Stormont, to pull the whole thing down. And that was very successful for the party in, in pure electoral terms. They did much better in last year's Stormont election than otherwise would have been the case and they have been doing well in the polls. Our papers poll most recently has them continuing to grow in support despite holding down Stormont. But there was always going to come a point where they had to think either about going back into Stormont with perhaps less than they had wanted to get um, out of the British government and out of the European Union or accept that Stormont is never coming back, that devolution is over, that the Good Friday Agreement is over, that the careers of all of their cadre of MLAs and special advisors and backroom people, all these people who have looked at Stormont as the core of their political, um, of, of, of where they see their future 
politically being, um, that suddenly that would be over. And I never really thought, and not very many people really thought that was what was ever going to happen. So this is a party that, that ultimately believes in devolution and um, wants devolution for all sorts of reasons, partly ideological, partly personal, partly about people's careers, partly about money. Um, and so now we're getting to the point, it seems, where the big decision is very, very close. And there are these very familiar talks where the British government get the parties in, they try to put pressure on them. They say, look, we really need to have a deal by this deadline. And almost invariably in Northern Ireland tends to be around Christmas um, when people like not just you and I, but normal people and politicians want to be doing other things. So there is a sense here that they are being put under pressure. Um, but there is there is also a sense that this is quite choreographed, that the DUP has been in private talks with the government. They have got some sort of private understanding with the government and the other parties are now being brought into this. And how much of this is genuine and proper um, in terms of actual negotiations, what it appears to be, and how much of this is actually just window dressing? That's that's the big question at the moment. Well, Sinn Féin said at the weekend, the deal has been done. The DUP and the NIO and the, and the UK government have done a deal. And this is just a dance now. But the DUP and NIO came out very quickly to denounce and deny that. So I tend to believe Sinn Féin in this one. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sold on anybody's line on this, but from other people that I was speaking to late last week, over the weekend and yesterday, there is certainly a strong belief among multiple people in multiple areas here. I'm not just talking about people in the DUP, people close to the negotiations in other ways. There is a strong belief that if a deal isn't technically finalised, and there's a lot of room for wriggling here around language, the deal hasn't been signed, so everybody can agree that the deal has not been finalised in that sense. Is there a package Package on the table that is fundamentally pretty much what is going to be there. I think there is. And I think the DUP leadership has agreed to that. Um, again, have they signed on a piece of paper? No. But have they given verbal assurances or indications that that will be passed? I think they have. I don't think that the DUP party officers have yet seen that document. But I think Jeffrey Donaldson has spoken to them or other people in the DUP have spoken to them. And there is a belief that he has a majority of the party officers on his side. So therefore, that's why we've got to this stage where we've stopped talking to an extent about the Windsor framework, about the Northern Ireland Protocol, about the Irish Sea border, and we've started talking about really cold, hard cash and how much it might be, um, uh, how how much the, the local parties might be able to extract from the British government if they do go back in. So it's £2.5 uh, that the UK government have put on the table. They're saying deal or no deal. But if I can clarify what you're saying is, that that's what we're talking about now. You believe that the DUP's issues around the Windsor framework or Northern Ireland Protocol, despite what they're, they're saying in public, which is no, we haven't gone far enough on that. But you believe that in actual fact that a deal has been struck with the UK government on those issues. I think the outline of a deal in terms of all of the core elements of it um, are fundamentally there. I think that if you if you if you look at one element of this, yesterday I was writing about this for the Belfast Telegraph and I asked the DUP press office yesterday morning if it disputed that they had accepted that the Irish Sea border would continue, um, that there would be a continued application of EU law in Northern Ireland. That's obviously a very significant element of this constitutionally, um, something which many DUP supporters didn't like. Um, and that 
that there would be practical mitigations around this, ways to soften the border, take the hard edges off it, make it easier to trade, but not get rid of the border. And other things like a, like a new East-West Council, which frankly to me sounds like a talking shop. It doesn't really sound like very much, but it's a sort of fig leaf that helps the DUP to say, look, we've got something that's a bit more British. This is, this is about Northern Ireland. This is about Britain. This is not about the Irish government, EU, anybody else. This is just about within the UK we're talking. I asked the party about that. There was no denial. There was no, um, no attempt by them to say that that wasn't right. Then after we published that story in the Belfast Telegraph website, a couple of hours later, Jeffrey Donaldson himself took to Twitter and gave what sounded like a very robust rejection of the idea that there was a deal. So let me just read you exactly what he said. He said, the DUP continues to be engaged in negotiations with the UK government to secure Northern Ireland's place in the union and to restore our position in the UK internal market. That doesn't really say very much, albeit he says that things are continuing. He then went on to say, to be clear, we are not negotiating on the basis of securing the better operation of the protocol and objectives will not be fulfilled by an acceptance of the Irish Sea border within our UK internal market. Now, let me just pause there. That on the face of it is really robust. I mean, that's him basically saying there can be no Irish Sea border whatsoever or we're not going back in. Now, if that's true, Stormont is not coming back. And I don't for a second believe that that's actually the real position here. But let me let me just give you the final bit of what he said. He said, any new arrangements will need to deliver real change and will be measured against our seven tests. Now, these are the DUP's yardstick, which they set out, what, two years ago now, maybe slightly more than two years ago now, where they said they would judge any solution to the Irish sea border as they saw it by these seven tests, one of which was it can't constitute an Irish sea border. It's hard to get blunter than that in terms of um, a simple explanation of what their stance was. But what he's saying here is subtly different to what the party once said. So he's not saying that they have to meet all seven tests. He is saying it will be measured against our seven tests. Now, I've been writing about the DUP for a long time. And the one thing that you're really careful about with the DUP is slippery language. They love to say something and then point back at it and say, no, we never said that at all. Look at the exact words. And it's very significant that in recent months, Jeffrey Donaldson has been asked at least once, and I think maybe more than once, do you still um, need all seven tests to, to be met before you go back in? And he refused several times to answer that question. Now he's mentioning the seven tests in a way that implies they're still significant, but actually he's saying we'll use that to measure this against it. There's room there for a lot of compromise, a lot of smoke to be thrown up and say, look, we haven't got it all, but we've got six of the tests, five of the tests. That's, I think, where this is headed. Yes, but some of his language remains quite strong. It's He's still got quite a distance to climb down if he's going to climb down. Uh, you would have thought he would have, you'd, but you do think he's taken, a, he's come down a few rungs on that ladder anyway. So, I mean... If you, if you look at this from one perspective, this is completely insane. If Jeffrey Donaldson is planning to go back in by Christmas, maybe even by next week, uh, or certainly by January, if that's the plan here, as lots of people close to this are saying it is, then why on earth would he be building up the expectation of his supporters that there is no climb down here whatsoever? Now, 
I think that's that's a massive um, issue here. Uh, you you could say that perhaps he has changed his mind. You could say that actually something in the last 24, 48 hours has flipped here, that actually within the party, within the people he's been talking to, he has looked at things and he actually just can't do this now. Um, but I think there's also a long history in unionism, um, which you don't have to the same extent with, with, um, with um, either Sinn Féin or the SDLP. It's a long history in unionism of unionist leaders not preparing their supporters for a compromise that's coming. Trimble didn't really do it. Paisley didn't really do it. Even Peter Robinson, who was better at this, didn't really do it at key points. And so it would not surprise me at all if in a week's time we have Jeffrey Donaldson standing at a lectern saying, um, we're going back in because it's the best we can get. Or maybe even trying to spin to the extent that he's claiming that they have abolished the Irish Sea border when obviously they haven't. I mean, that I think is something that's entirely feasible here. But the problem with that is that you're building, I think, on a very unstable foundation. If your supporters have been led to believe that you will not move on this, they've voted for you, they've given you that mandate, and right up to the last minute, you're still saying to them, we're not shifting an inch here, and then ultimately you move, well, you're very vulnerable then. Ulster's not for sale, someone said on the radio yesterday. I thought it was always, it was, I thought it was a great line, it always is, but three words, Dodds, Wilson and Paisley, will they, will they join Jeffrey hand in hand when he does jump? So that's that's what people inside the DUP are talking about and thinking about. I talked to somebody who knows all three of those individuals very well yesterday and they said that um, they thought that Sammy Wilson and Paisley Jr. would still hold out against this. Certainly Paisley Jr. would be mischievous. He would kick up lots of smoke, lots of dust in Jeffrey Donaldson's face around this. Um, Sammy Wilson maybe slightly less so depending on various other factors. But what this person said to me was they had no doubt whatsoever that Nigel Dodds will come on board. They said, look at all the other big negotiations um, in, in, in 2006 on policing and justice on lots of other things there have been points where he has been very robust he's been seen as a hardliner and ultimately he comes on board now I'm I'm still curious to see what happens there because because what Nigel Dodds has been saying, what Lord Dodds has been saying over the last um, several months has been more vocal than anybody in the DUP. He has been standing up in the House of Lords and basically trashing the whole concept of the Windsor framework. And yet it's the Windsor framework, clearly, which will be the very um, firm outline, the clear basis, the clear architecture of any deal that happens here. So for him to move on that would be remarkable. One thing that I've picked up from two different people and um, from two different perspectives is that there is a strong rumour going around that that um, Diane Dodds, who is obviously Lord Dodds's wife and who is a DUP MLA, that she will be offered the Speaker's position in the Storm Assembly if it comes back and that that will basically be a pretty crude way of trying to buy off the Dodds's on this particular issue. Now I talked to somebody in the DUP who said, look, that's just so crude, there is no way they could do that. Uh, it is the DUP's turn to have the Speaker's job. There's a deal between them and Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin had it the last time, so that is within the gift of Geoffrey Donaldson. Um, he can basically hand that out as a bobble if he wants. There's also ministerial jobs. We know that Diane Dodds was a minister before. Um, but I think that if Nigel Dodds was to move that radically and his wife was to be given something significant, to a lot of DUP supporters that would look very crude and very suspicious. Sam, let's talk cold, hard cash. $2.5 billion. Seems a lot of money, but the parties seem united as one to say it's not enough. 
mean, Sinn Féin say it doesn't touch the surface of what's required for them. It wouldn't even get the grass cut in front of Stormont. The Alliance Party leader, Naomi Long, has used the word that you've just used, bubbles, uh, to describe this. It's just not enough for any long-term solutions. Obviously, they all want more money. Uh, do you think they, the UK government have a little bit more in the tank there? Well, they've clearly got a lot in the exchequer. Um, things are things are tough in London right now. There's there are problems economically. There are problems, massive problems politically. But there's still an awful lot of money for a place the size of Northern Ireland. I mean, first of all. billion pounds and I think these sums can lose people, they can lose us, they can lose ordinary people because they're so astronomical. What's the difference between 2 billion and 4 billion? I mean, they're both just gargantuan sums of money. 2.5 billion, even in the context of a Stormont budget, which is about 16.5 billion per year, that's still a lot of money. I mean, this, this, this is really significant, but there's two significant caveats here. The first is it's not all coming at once, right? Even if they do this deal, a lot of this money is over years to come. Some of it's over five years. Um, some of it's not actually new money at all. It's basically writing off debts that Stormont has run up um, during the last couple of years. So first of all, it's not all that it seems. It's not actually 2.5 billion. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the last time Stormont came back in the new decade, new approach deal, that awfully titled deal, which made it sound like everything was going to be different and it basically was all the same. That deal involved a claim that there was going to be £2 billion of money coming to Stormont. And again, sounded like a really massive sum of money. Within days after signing up to this, the parties realised that it wasn't £2 billion, it was £1 billion. The other billion was something they were going to get anyway. And Sinn Féin in particular was stung by this. They kicked up a stink. They had the finance ministry. Connor Murphy was the finance minister. And he said, I will not be accepting this. He went over to London. He actually couldn't even get a meeting with the chancellor. They got the chief secretary to the treasury to speak to him. And he ultimately did accept it because he had nowhere to go. He'd already signed up. And so the parties were basically um, screwed over, if you like. Um, They were naive. They went into this and signed on the dotted line without understanding what on earth they were signing. So that's why they will not if they have any sense whatsoever in pure political terms, be doing that again. So they'll take a few days, at least, if not a week or two, to work out exactly what is on the table here. And then they'll be trying to squeeze more out of that because they know that as soon as they're back in there, they're responsible for public services in Northern Ireland, which are in a shocking state. They need enormous sums of money to be able to do things that will be more popular with the public, give public servants pay rises, um, not shut masses of the public sector to try to balance the books. They don't want to be in that position. So they will try to squeeze as much as they can. They will be able to get more um, because the British government is desperate to get this off its plate. It wants a solution here. Um, but how much can they ultimately get? That's ultimately up to them to negotiate. Well, surely they realise at this stage that the NAO and the UK Treasury can be a wee bit slicked about these things. Well, you, 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 would, you, would, you, would, you would certainly like to think that, but um, the Treasury also have a view these days that Stormont can be pretty sleek about these things. There is a strong tension here, I think, between what the Treasury, in terms of its officials, um, are thinking about this, where they've looked at the likes of the RHI scandal, they've looked at other Stormont extravagant um, scandals in a, in, a, in, a, in a very significant financial sense, and they have decided that actually they need to keep a tighter eye on Stormont 
that not just Stormont ministers are trying to screw money out of London, but actually the civil service here has got this as part of its core identity in many cases. That's what came out of the RHI inquiry, that sense that milking the cash cow in London is basically a policy direction. I mean, it's not an accident. It's not something that one party does. This is what the entire system does. But you've got that set against the political imperative that Rishi Sunak wants to win. He wants this office plate. He wants to be able to say, look, I've all these problems, but my goodness, I solved that really difficult one in Northern Ireland. So I think he will throw whatever he can get at this to get it off his plate. But the Treasury will be at his shoulder saying, now, don't be too reckless here. You could create further problems down the line. Right now, I don't think that's going to stop Sunak because he's not thinking beyond a year's time when he's very unlikely to be prime minister. Unsurprisingly, uh, the TUV are indicating that this deal, whatever it is, won't be sufficient for them. A statement by the TUV chairman, Cusher councillor Keith Radcliffe says, however one describes the offer from Westminster, a bribe or blackmail, no true unionist could accept it as the price of the union. You know, we can depend on them to have a certain stance. But as well as the TUV, there is old loyalism and there's new loyalism. And, you know, they all seem to be taking a hard line on this. And I wonder, is there a threat there to Jeffrey Donaldson or or is, or is this merely just... So there, there, there is a threat to Jeffrey Donaldson in the sense that he will lose support over this. As soon as he goes back to Stormont, he is going to lose support. He might lose a few councillors. Um, he will certainly, I think, lose some party members. He'll certainly lose um, a swathe of his, of his voting base um, because he has promised them that he will not do this and he is about to do it if, if, if he goes back to Stormont. There is no way that he's able to get back into Stormont and get rid of the Irish Sea border in its entirety. It's not possible. It's not on the table. They haven't even been in talks with the EU to establish that. There is no appetite for that whatsoever. So you cannot do something of that magnitude and not take some political pain. That's just, that's the reality of politics. But can those people dislodge Jeffrey Donaldson as leader? Unlikely, I think. There isn't exactly a queue of people in the DUP who are credible leaders to take over from him. Um, They've been in chaos before he came in. They'll be wary about returning to that. And they're still the only show in town as far as unionism is concerned in terms of the big parties that might be able to take on Sinn Féin. They're not, I think, if there was a snap election, going to credibly challenge Sinn Féin to be the biggest party, but they're absolutely going to be the second biggest party unless something really dynamic happens um, and really shocking happens. So, And one other element of this is that while, yes, there is a lot of anger in parts of loyalism, parts of very traditional unionism at what they think might be happening here, the sense that Jeffrey Donaldson is going to do something that he told them he wasn't going to do, there are also people here in that category who are seeing things differently. I talked yesterday to somebody who's a very experienced unionist, a prominent person, somebody who would, I think, describe themselves as a loyalist, somebody who's a member of the loyal orders, um, somebody who's very well connected in unionism. And they said to me, look, it's time to get back in. They talked about the situation in the health service. They talked about the reality they'd seen for themselves, their family had seen, um, their friends had seen. There are people who are looking at this from other perspectives, but I think when you look at the polling and you look at how popular the DUP um, stance on this, where it's been ultra hardline has been, those people are the exception to the rule. If those people were not the exception, Doug Beattie would be soaring in the polls and he's not. Sam, you're an astute observer, I suppose, of unionist politics and of politics in general. But looking at this, it does seem that unionism is in some sort of pattern here and has been for a long time. And that is no, 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 no. Well, all right then. How 
could unionism be more proactive rather than reactive? How can unionism set the agenda rather than seeming to be reacting to making a hard stand and then realizing that part of politics is that you just can't get everything you want? Well, as you say, there's a there's a very long history of this in unionism, and I'm trying to remember the quote, which I will get slightly wrong, but there's a there's a brilliant quote in Sir Ken Bloomfield's um, memoir about his time in the civil service. He obviously became head of the civil service, but from the 1960s, he was a very significant figure in the civil service. He was he was there with Terence O'Neill, he was there with Brian Faulkner, he was um, there under direct rule, and I think it was about Terence O'Neill that he said O'Neill kept trying to buy reform and basically buy a acceptance of what he was doing from nationalism, from Catholics in Northern Ireland at that point. Um, but he tried to buy it at last year's prices. So he there, there was an inflating market and he kept underbidding. So he would offer something, but already the demand had moved to something else because, as you said, he couldn't get ahead of where things were going. And that's been a persistent problem for unionism. There have been people in unionism who have tried to say, we need to look at this strategically. We need to think about the future in Northern Ireland. We need to think about changing demographics, about changing realities of the type of people who vote unionist, about the type of people who might even be persuadable to vote, to vote unionist, um, about why people are voting for the Alliance Party, why they're not voting at all. But generally, the mood in unionism has been that if you are a soft unionist leader, it's difficult to make those arguments and you're vulnerable. Look at almost every unionist leader that has been toppled, has been toppled for being too soft rather than for being too hard. Right up to Edwin Putz, most recently of all. Um, he was not toppled because he was seen as an old Paisleyite who was a bit hardline or a bit out of date. No, he was toppled because he was seen as the guy who was too moderate of all things. That's the, that's the sort of mindset of unionism. And it's very hard when you've got something that's been ingrained for for decades from from before Northern Ireland was founded more than a century ago. It's very hard to break that mindset. Um, but the reality is that when you look at the numbers, I, I was looking at this this recently for the Belfast Telegraph. Jeffrey Donaldson and Arlene Foster defected from the Austrian Unionist Party twenty years ago this month, um, or rather, they left the Austrian Unionist Party twenty years ago this month and then joined in January the Democratic Unionist Party. And back then, unionism had, and I'm trying to I'm trying to now recall exactly how many. I think it was it. 53% of the MLAs in Stormont, the, the, the number of MLAs was slightly greater, so we'll go by percentages, and it's now 41%. And that's an astonishing level of decline in 20 years. It's all the more astonishing because this is not a system like Britain where you have swings between the Labour Party and the Tories where people might go one way or the other. This is a tribal system where people might move from the SDLP to Sinn Féin or from the Ulster Unionist Party to the DUP, but they don't move from Sinn Féin to unionism or vice versa. That does not happen without, you know, outside a tiny handful of people. So for unionism to lose 11, 12 percentage points of its MLAs in that period of time is, a, is really a complete catastrophe. And yet still the DUP are doing almost exactly the same things, talking about unionist unity, about circling the wagons, about getting the orange order to engineer unionist unity in North Down of all places. I mean, a seat where 10 years ago, um, 90% of the votes were unionist. I mean, there they need a unionist unity candidate, they think, to win the seat. But that's all they have. That's that's the only idea they have. There's no new thinking. There's, new, there's no novel thinking of how can we persuade these people who vote alliance to come on board. So there's a massive problem in unionism, but it's not getting any better. Or maybe... As I always say, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Final, final question, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Would you have a punt at a time frame now for the next week or two? 
I think it's more likely than not that Stormont now is back by the end of the year, but with the huge caveat that Jeffrey Donaldson has been strikingly indecisive throughout this. We know that he wants to be back in. I've never doubted that for a second. That's never been the key issue here. He has, I believe, told the government that he's willing to sign this deal. But again, that's not the key issue here. It's can he get his party on board? And the fact that um, after three days now, three, four days or something like that, since it seems he communicated this to the government, he's still coming out and making tough sounding noises. I think if you're in the government, you would be getting a little bit jittery. Is he yet again taking cold feet? Is he prepared to do what Trimble did and face down those people who are dissenting? And obviously Donaldson was a person back then who was dissenting. Uh, or is he actually going to do what Jim Molyneux, his mentor, uh, did, which was try to do as little as possible keep everybody on board let's not take any risks here party unity above everything else if he's doing that we'll still be here next year Sam McBride Northern Ireland editor with the Belfast Telegraph thank you very much thank you this episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself Kieran Dunbar the assistant producer was Olivia Peden the sound design was by Graham Davidson the clips you heard were from Sky News UTV and the BBC 